Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, we'll manage to do the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 11, 2013, and this is episode 1205 of the Survival Podcast. Um, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say something about the fact that this is September 11th, and... Um, Regardless of your thoughts on the how or the why, what we re need to remember on this day is thousands of people lost their lives um, in a tragedy that, for a very short time, on some levels, unified our country. And it would be great if maybe someday we could have that type of unification in this country uh, with a sense of purpose without it being a tragedy. It seems only in times of our greatest tragedy do we come together. And uh, it's too bad that that's the case. Hopefully, the kind of work we're doing here to make people more independent is actually a great way to make people more unified. Because those that can stand apart often choose to stand together. Anyway, uh, we have a good show for you. I got a guy I'm going to be bringing on in just a bit named John Fedick. We're going to do a show on wood gasification and some other alternative energy stuff that he's playing around with. He's a professional engineer. And I'll have him in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems. That's what, I mean, shocking that the Berkey Guy would, yeah, really, come on. We know that Berkey Guy has that. But why get your Berkey from the Berkey Guy? Why don't you go to the gun show and get it from the guy that just got into, like, prepper gear, like, last year? Because it was really, a cool, well, because he's not the Berkey Guy. If you can buy from the Berkey guy, that's that's who you should buy from, right? The guy. And Jeff, really, to be serious, is one of the hardest-working entrepreneurs I know. He's one of the most successful dealers uh, out there for Berkey. He gets great pricing. He passes it along to you. And his customer service is... Um, in a word, I guess the word I would do is eccentric. I mean, the guy is just a maniac about making sure his customers are taken care of, and I so appreciate him being a sponsor with us for so long. Next up today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith actually is going to be at my house in October, and uh, it's going to be pretty cool. And uh, he's going to uh, he's going to uh, be here actually for our workshop and do some cooking. I think Friday and Saturday night he'll probably be doing most of the cooking. Uh, so that's going to be great for those of you guys that are coming here. But for everyone else, you want a taste of what he's going to be doing? Get over to his website, check out his videos. It will teach you how to make cooking a life skill. Uh, and if you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, you've never lived on MREs for a, a few months. Uh, cooking is. <laughs> A big time prepper skill. And he's got some great seasoning mixes. Among my favorites are the Montreal steak, uh, the slow and slow barbecue, and the, and the chicken seasoning. All three of those are just fabulous. They're all good. Northern Italian's great too, but it's, it's those three that I use the most. And uh, they're just great. And he's got a great podcast too. And of course, he's a member of our expert council. So get on over to Harvest Eating and uh, support the guy that does a lot to support us. He really does. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the relaunch of 13skills.com. Uh, I still haven't had a single person enter 
to win a free lifetime membership. Maybe no one's going to do that. It's kind of shocking to me. I'm looking for someone to make some, you know, badges for bloggers to display, like, you know, put on their blog, like, you know, see my 13 skills progress or something like that, or check out my profile at 13 skills, just something really cool looking. And I've had no submissions, which kind of surprises me. Uh, I am giving away a free lifetime membership of the Member Support Brigade uh, to whoever produces the best design, and we would make all the designs available. So you guys out there with some graphic skills, take a look at 13 Skills. Everybody else, get on over the 13 Skills and check out the upgrades. Uh, we've really got the site in a totally different level at this point. And what we're trying to put in next is when someone comments on one of your progress reports or you comment back that you know one of you guys gets in either side of it gets an email so that you know that somebody, hey, responded to what you're doing. We're trying to make the site more interactive. We'd love your suggestions. If you go to 13skills.com, you'll see uh, beta 2.0 feedback. You can click on it and tell us what you'd like to see us do there next. That's pretty much how we're trying to decide what to do next based on what the community asks for. So check it out, 13skills.com. Improve or get Gain 13 new skills in 2013 uh, and track your progress and get support and help from others while you do it. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you can find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members or clicking on the Members Support Brigade banner there. And there's a link to the Members Brigade in every show notes uh, set up as well. Did add three awesome new benefits to the Members Support Brigade yesterday. Uh, really cool. Um, Paul Wheaton is giving a 15% discount on his DVD series uh, to you guys for the Rocket Mass Heater uh, DVDs he put together. Uh, new uh, discount vendor TN Tactical Supply, veteran-owned and operated web-based tactical store. Uh, they're giving 10% off all items in their store except for ammunition. And Permaculture Classroom, of course, we did the show yesterday with Nick and Nick. Uh, Nick Ferguson is offering all MSB members who want to go to that Earthworks course in Saline, Louisiana, uh, in, uh, in late October, $200 off, which is a great discount, more than pays for the membership in of itself. That was went out in a blog post yesterday. So just for you guys that are in the brigade, um, like I said, I told you I had some stuff coming. That was it, and I'm working on some more stuff for you guys already to continue to build the value of the Member Support Brigade for you. Uh, yesterday, I was supposed to tell you about the year 1204. I had a lot going on, and it slipped. It wasn't a hugely, hugely uh, interesting year. Uh, there was a four-year-old named Guttorm who was proclaimed king of Norway, uh, and his reign ended with his death a few months later. So they made a four-year-old king. He, of course, didn't do anything. He was a figurehead. And it's suspected that somebody might have done something to make him dead. Uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> that that's not typical of governments, is it? To, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, it is. Uh, on the Crusades, the Fourth Crusade was going on. The Crusaders take Constantinople by storm and pillage the city for three days. Great guys, uh, and then forces of the Republic of Venice. Remember, they had been already. Uh, It took uh, payment from the Crusaders for a loan they didn't pay back. Well, they seized an antique, some antique statues that would become later the Horses of St. Mark at St. Mark's Basilica. Um, it's pretty interesting what actually happened with the horses. Um, the uh, They were four bronze, beautiful bronze horses, and um, they were then kept uh, in Italy until they were looted by Napoleon in 1787. They were then returned in 1815. 
and then they were removed again. And let me see if I can. F well, anyway, they ended up they ended up eventually in a museum, and there's replicas now uh, at St. Mark's. But you can see the original horses at a museum that's right there. So the horses that people see in uh, in Venice at St. Mark's Basilica that they think are these you know wonderful things built for for St. Mark's Basilica were actually stolen during the Crusades. And uh, the ones you're looking at aren't even the original ones, even though they've made the, the new ones look old again. Um, it's They're actually amazingly beautiful statues when you think of how long ago these things were made uh, to be that accurate in their detail. Uh, so that's that was 1204, so to go a little long today. 1205, I have one thing for you in it, and it, it just shows the more things change, the more they stay the same. Anjou is conquered by Philip II of France, Fearing a French invasion of England itself, John of England requires every English male over 12 years of age uh, to enter an association, enter an association, quote, for the general defense of the realm and the preservation of peace, end quote. So basically, he militarized all males over the age of 12. And you would do this in this situation, not just so much so that you could have a bigger army, but you're sending a very clear message to your people. You have a duty to defend the land if we're invaded. Civilians tend to try to stay the hell out of the way uh, during an invasion, and they let the governments sort it out, uh, especially in a time like this where, you know, which king you're paying taxes to when you're a serf, eh, do you really care? And uh, this is basically saying you, you can't stand to the side If we're invaded, you, you must fight. And we'll hear more about where that went in the future when we're looking at the past. Anyway, so that was 1204 and 1205. You want to know more about those, there's links in the show notes that you can do that with. Uh, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest. Again, his name is John Fedick. He is a mechanical engineer with a passion for renewable energy, and he's here to talk to us today about wood gasification. And with that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks, Jack. I really appreciate you having me on today. Uh, I've been a listener for over three years, and uh, I'm real excited to be on and kind of share some of my projects and things I've been working on with the rest of the uh, community. Well, awesome, man. We're going to talk about wood gasifiers today, and I know there's a ton of interest in that in the community. Before we get into that, though, could you just kind of tell folks, like, you know, a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I'm a mechanical design engineer. Uh, I currently work in the uh, aerospace or integrated gas turbine field. Uh, basically, we build uh, integrated gas turbines, which are they belong at power plants, so they are what generate energy at your power plant and uh, send it on over to your house. Uh, they also are, you know, the same thing as basically in an airplane. It's a turbine. Um, so that's where I currently work. Um, and uh, as a design engineer, I commonly are given tasks. Um, I come up with, you know, how, how is the, the new um, object or function, how is this going to work, what are the materials required, uh, and how, how do we get it made in a cost-effective manner. So um, in addition to that, uh, I also am very interested in renewable energies. Um, I completed my master's thesis in uh, fuel cell technologies back in 2008, and um, I'm looking uh, very much interested in getting back into the field. So that's what kind of brings me here today, just to kind of discuss what I've been up to. Very cool, man. So, I mean, we're going to talk about wood gasification, and that one, I, I would put that under the category of renewable resources, because we can grow wood pretty fast, especially with coppicing and pollarding and stuff. Um, do you feel, based on your background and the work you're doing, 
that there are there any renewable energy technologies that are mature enough to actually replace fossil fuels because that seems like the dream that that, that never is absolutely i I think that there has been a lot of work there's been a lot of very intelligent people throughout history to come up with a bunch of different technologies and it's very much I see it um, as kind of an open field similar to permaculture right now if you can stack these different uh, systems in in and have their um, you know inputs and outputs um, benefit each other I believe you really can fulfill your energy needs um, through renewable energies we'll call it not just solar technologies um, but it, it it does take a little there's not just a you know an oil replacement it does take a little bit of engineering and a little bit of thought to properly stack the functions just like in permaculture it's it's very similar and it's very interesting how they tie right together cool so what do you what do you think the the best technologies are what what has the greatest potential right now as far as uh taking us kind of to that next level with renewables well this is this i really am a big fan of you know the the low cost and the efficient technologies such as solar thermal technologies um, I live in Florida, so solar thermal, um, even though it doesn't get too cold down here, it is a very abundant resource. The sun is out all the time. Um, I'm also obviously a fan of gasification. Um, the main reason for gasification is because it can actually um, improve the efficiency of how much you know power or energy you could get out of um, you know wood or other biomasses that you want to burn. So those are those are two of the um, you know most prominent technologies that I think will will be in the, you know, move forward with, but we'll discuss some other options as we move forward here, some other projects I've been working on. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit more about the the gas fire that you're building yourself? And, I mean, what's the advantage of that over other designs that are available? I mean, there's the, you know, the FEMA plan has been out there forever. I haven't seen a lot of them built, honestly, but the the plan's there. Everybody talks about it. Uh, And you kind of come up with a different uh, take on this. Sure. Um, well, the main difference between I, I'm actually building a variation of a, a new gas fire design. It was built by Larry Dobson. Uh, you could find his website at fundamentalform.com. We'll probably put a link in the show notes. And I took a look at his plans. Um, I sent him, you know, some correspondence back and forth and, and discussed his new design with him. Um, but the main uh, things that he is looking to improve on, based on the old Imbert style or FEMA gasifier is the improved gas quality, um, and he's able to, or he's attempting to preheat the inlet air uh, with the heat from the exhaust stream. So, you know, in gasification, you have wood mass that's heated up. Um, it's partially oxidized or partially combusted um, in an environment that there's not enough oxygen to burn all the wood. So some of the wood burns, but most of it just gets heated up, and it releases, you know, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, um, and some other various gases, hydrogen. And if you if you go ahead and preheat the air, you know, use that exhaust, the heated exhaust to preheat the air, you actually will get a more stable gasification zone, um, and you also will get a higher efficiency burn because you won't need to use as much wood to keep the gas fire running. It kind of makes sense. It's sort of like um, an afterburner in a jet, right? We <laughs> Not really the same thing, but sort of. Yep. yep. 
Um, another benefit is, is depending on how you tune it now, uh, you could have a higher turndown ratio and also in a more, a better ability to run fuels that have higher water content. Uh, and this is accomplished by basically attempting to condense. So when you heat water up, just like when you boil water on the stove, uh, the water evaporates, right? There's a certain amount of energy required to change the water from a liquid to a gas. So the, that same amount of energy is required when there's water inside of a log and you heat the log up. Um, I think everybody's experienced that when they try to, you know, light wet wood. Um, so there's a lot of energy required to do that. And just like in the, you know, in the gas fire, it's the same thing. So as you heat the wood, um, you, you take energy from the system to evaporate, you know, evaporate the water into gas and then that water flows through the system and then when it comes out the water is still in the exhaust so if you're able to condense or cool the exhaust gas to a low enough um, temperature that the water condenses back out you can actually regain or capture that heat back so that's another oh, wow. another way of increasing the efficiency of the system just by preheating the inlet air so it's actually a two-fold benefit you get from that a stable you know gasification zone but you also get a higher quality, because obviously you can't burn water, right? So mm -hmm. you get a higher quality fuel in the exhaust, um, and you use less wood to keep the gas fire going in the process. And you, you're you taking this design and, and modifying it with your own modifications to further improve it. So what are some of your modifications you've made? Well, I'm not sure if it's an actual uh, improvement, but it's really just making it suited for my application. So Larry's original design was meant to go out to maybe third world countries where people needed a, um, you know, a fuel source for to, to burn, to you know, produce heat for cooking, um, and they also wanted to heat water. So internal to his design, there is a small combustor area which takes the the, what I'm going to call producer gas, which is the output of the gasifier. That's the combustible gas. It takes that gas and ignites it and then heats basically water, which is on the other side of a heat exchanger. Right. Um, so in, I didn't need that function. Uh, my, the main purpose for me building one is to provide power to run a small generator. So um, because I didn't need the, the water heating function, I just kind of removed that complexity out of the, out of the manufacturing process so I wouldn't have to go, go through that. Um, it is a little bit challenging because of the, his heat exchanger was designed to be a spiral type shape and it requires basically a CNC type plasma machine to properly manufacture it or at least easily manufacture it. So I removed that and basically just have a, a gasifier that has a fairly uh, comp well, extensive heat exchanger to try to preheat the inlet air is basically what I, I came down to. Hmm. And then you did some stuff with the air inlet as well? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, his previous design um, kind of used water as the, you know, sort of the heat transfer mechanism from the exhaust air to the inlet air. And because I didn't have water anymore, I had to change how the air flowed by the exhaust air, if that makes sense. So had to change okay. the heat exchanger, you know, basically how that worked. And then you did some other stuff for, like, monitoring and... That's right, that's right. So uh, one thing that was, you know, left out of Larry's design, which, to be fair, he, he also added that he would very much like to have it in, is a health monitoring system for the gas fire to let you know, um, you know, what the internal temperature is, um, but it'll also tell you, you know, how, what's the quality of the gas coming out. I'm going to have uh, carbon monoxide and possibly oxygen sensors in the, in the actual exhaust stream. Um, 
in addition to that, I'm going to provide a feedback loop with a, basically an Arduino-type controller, which if anyone's familiar with, it's a, it's a very low-cost, do-it-yourself, um, basically a, a microprocessor that you could buy for 20 or $30 yourself and set them up. And there's a bunch of, to be honest, young, young kids on YouTube much more talented at that than me. But uh, <laughs> you can use that system to go ahead and, and monitor how the gas fire is doing and then feedback, you know, the information fed back to it will go to some servos, which are just motors that can actuate the gas fire to basically make it run more efficiently. So, so usually when gas fires are running, you've got to monitor them in order to keep the, the temperature in the right zone. There's a few things that can happen in gas fires, such as fuel bridging, which is basically, you know, the fuel doesn't get down to the zone, so the bottom zone starts actually getting hotter, and that could cause... Um, some issues with the gas quality, as well as once the fuel kind of gets burned out and it's bridged, it collapses and causes the whole gasification zone to then cool, which obviously affects the gas fire. So what I'm going to do is add a motor that rotates the gasification grate whenever the temperature goes outside of a certain range. So basically, it helps to keep the gas fire running without you monitoring it constantly. Because I guess there's certain constants, and we know if there's this, if there's too much of something or too little of something in the gas, that there's a solution that always corresponds to that. So by using this monitoring system, basically the machine makes its own adjustments, which is, you know, twenty twenty first century technology, not you know, uh, you know, World War II German technology that was you know some of the stuff was originally being built with. That's right. That's right. It's it's funny because if you look at back, there's a in 1988, I believe, the uh, National Energy Laboratories released a document on gasification, and they were just kind of doing, um, you know, a, a survey of what is the current status of the technology and trying to, uh, you know, drum up some of the old, you know, the old, I guess, best practices that in World War One and World War Two that were kind of lost. So they kind of put together a document, you know, giving the what is the state of the art as of 1988, which I have uh, posted on my website. And we can also put a link for that in, in the show notes. Um, and actually gives a very good overview of gasification technology, where it's been and where it's going. Um, but within there, I guess, is, is where you can find a lot of information um, about gas fires. I kind of, let's see. But I, I think that that would be that would that would be a good place to, to start. I kind of lost my train of thought there, but that's okay. Very cool. So, what's like what you mentioned current status of something else? But what's the current status of your gas fire? It, it's not up and running yet, is it? Or no, no, unfortunately not. Uh, the plan was actually to start the build. I was going to take uh, a vacation off of work, take a week off of work, and just just go ahead and try to weld the whole thing together. Um, I at this current point in time my welder then wouldn't broke that the day before I wanted to start so um, it has gone out to the shop to be fixed but basically I have all the materials and I've got the the final plans for what I'm continuing to do so I've been working on I've casted um, I've somewhat tried to make my own inner refractory hearth with out of some Portland cement and some other refractories I'm not 100% sure if that's going to work yet or not and that's something else I kind of wanted to bring up you know I'm not um a tried and true expert, so you know sometimes everything's not going to work out. And I put all that up on my website too. I think you learn from your failures as much as you learn from your successes, and even more some more so sometimes. So it just depends on how you look at it. So you know I put up on my website you know what works and what doesn't, and I'm hoping to have other people learn from those experiences. So right now I'm waiting on the welder to get back from from the manufacturer where it's being repaired, and in the meantime uh, I'm taking the time to cut out all of the different components from the sheet metal stock. 
Um, I basically purchased the stock. It's it's you know stainless steel, uh, 422 20 grade. Uh, 20 gauge sheet metal so I have to cut out all the individual pieces from that um, and I'm using just you know a pair of electric scissors and and uh, possibly a plasma torch if my welder comes back with it so that that's kind of the, the current status the plan is sometime middle of October to take take that week off and go ahead and weld it together and then start the testing afterwards gotcha gotcha so once you've got this thing built and optimized what do you uh what do you plan to do with it? Are you going to teach people how to build it? Are you going to sell them? I mean, what, what, where, where are you going with it? Well, really, I, I, I really enjoy uh, spreading the word about renewable energies, and I want to focus my efforts in that area. So I definitely want to teach others how to build them. Um, I don't really want to be in the business of building and selling gas fire units. Uh, what, so what I plan on doing is putting together, basically I'm going to put it together a video kind of, you know, video of my entire build for the prototype. That'll be available for free on my website. And then uh, once I've ironed out all the kinks, make sure that everything works, I'll probably put together a set of manufacturing plans. Uh, this can be used by anyone that wants to go ahead and try to build it themselves. But for most people, I know that probably isn't practical. So you could just take this down to a local welding or fabrication shop, and they should be able to just, you know, read the plans. They will be to some sort of ISO or ASME spec. So basically there's a um, general dimensioning and tolerancing that will go on these plans. They should be able to read this, and they should be able to just go ahead and build it for you or at least give you a price quote. So that's kind of the the long-term goals of, of this project and some of the other projects I'll talk about. I don't really want to be in the business of production, more gotcha. so, you know, spreading of the information. Yeah, and I mean, in that way, people could determine how much of the project they want to do for themselves. There's a lot of this stuff I look at, and I could, I could do it, but when it comes to some of the welding and cutting... Uh, I don't have the equipment, and yeah, I go to a makerspace, but that's like 45 miles away. And being able to just take it down to a shop and say, you know, cut this much, cut cut all this up, make this for me, weld these parts together, and leave it to this level so that I can complete it myself is is nice to the DIY person that doesn't want to have maybe everything be DIY. That's right, and and one of the main reasons that I decided to take on the whole project myself is so that I really understood what I was asking these these fabricators to do and, or, you know, what I was asking people in a third world country to do, right? So yeah. I wanted to really understand, you know, all the nuts and bolts and all the issues that go into the manufacturing process. But for someone that, that doesn't have the time, um, you could just take it to somebody and it, it is assemblable. You know, it is, you could disassemble it once it's together. Um, there's flanges and bolts. So basically you could just come back in your truck with a bunch of parts and just build it together like you just came home from the, you know, the box store. So are you basically doing this as like an open source project? Well, I mean, that's originally how Larry came out with the, the original idea. Um, and right now, I have not done anything that I believe is, you know, I'm going to implement the automation and kind of the health monitoring systems and probably will end up, you know, selling the plants for that. But at this time, Larry has released his version to, as, to the open source community and to anybody that wants to go ahead and, and view that. And you could see a complete set of plans for his design. Um, those are completed. I'm not quite finished with the, the, the plan set for the prototype build, um, but once I'm done with that, I'll be putting that on my website as well. What, what do you expect the performance of this piece of equipment to be? Like, what, what, what is it? You know, you're talking about running a small generator, so you know, roughly how long, how much wood, what kind of output. And sure, sure. So the the goal for this is to run a 8 to 10 kilowatt generator. That's kind of what 
You know, the okay. end goal of the gas fire is in pretty substantial generator. That's right. We're not talking about a Honda two two thousand, you know, little right. generator. Okay. That's right. So the now based on Larry's previous experience, Larry Dobson has been designing gas fires for over thirty years. He's got a lot of different designs up there. This is a uh, a new design for him. It's a new different type of gas fire. So he's given some estimates on to what he thinks, you know, the heat output would be, which is something around thirty two thousand kilowatts um, uh, kilowatts an hour or something like that so it's it's about on par with what we're looking at as far as powering the 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 generator might be a little undersized but there is a pretty wide operating range of this gas fire at least in his opinion so i'm really just going to go in and and find out as far as the um, the wood consumption in that there's been some estimates um, but i haven't really wanted to state any or make any claims because you know how how it goes with with the internet, you make claims and you don't quite meet them, then you're a failure, even though the whole thing works. So trees, trees don't read specs, so they'll they'll give you what they'll give you, and and, and that's the way it's going to be. And, th- and that's the other thing with gasification: the type of fuel and the you know the shape and how dense it is and how it's broken up all matters on the efficiency and how much you're going to use. So I was just going to start off with a wood chip type fuel. You know what's widely available? I actually have a wood chipper, so if I could just chip my own wood, I'm going to see what that. That can do sure. for me. Um, if that doesn't work too well, then I'll try. I'll try a different shape. I know back in World War One, World War Two, they used like one-inch cubes of like hard oak or something mm-hmm. of some sort of hardwood. So that was what was used as the fuel. And actually, those gas fires were very picky about the fuel. So I'm hoping that this design is able to kind of open up and give you a, a wider variety of you know uh, moisture content and also types and shapes of fuels. So there's a lot of testing to still go on in that area. Um, but I, that's kind of the, the approach. That's what I'm going for. Um, I don't have a ton of experience building these, so I'm basing my design off of his experience and the fact that I know it's going to produce some gas. Even if the gas isn't very, very high quality, um, you know, basically you could tell by once you ignite the burner coming out of the back of it, it's a yellow flame, it's somewhat dirty, but if it comes out a nice blue flame, you know, it's pretty clean gas. So mm-hmm. that's kind of that's what I'm looking for at first. And then once I get the prototype up and running, I'll be actually, I'll be able to monitor the, um, you know, the, the carbon monoxide and hydrogen content of the gas, and then I can really quantify, you know, what quality it is. And what do you see is going to be the, the cost of one of these things to have fabricated? I know it's ballparking or a, a statistical wild-ass guess, basically, um, because you're in process. But is there, like, a target you're trying to hit, keep it under a certain price or something? Sure, sure. Um, one of the reasons – the other reasons I, I think you can, you know – you know this too from having work done on your car or anything like that. You know sometimes the parts really aren't the the over you know don't make a lot of make a large part of the overall cost. So I'm estimating somewhere around twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars for the materials, and then comes you know the actual labor, so mm-hmm. the welding um, and all that stuff. So it's probably going to come out to eight to ten thousand dollars when you're done with the whole thing. If it was built for you and kind of brought you know brought to your house or at least you set it up. Okay. Now I'm hoping to get down near the two to three thousand dollar range because doing a lot of the work myself. Now of course that did require me to buy a welder. So mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of things that go into that price and it depends on how you you know I would have probably bought the welder eventually anyway. So it's not a big deal for me. But um, it really depends on what your end goals are and what you're trying to do. Uh, but, but in my opinion, you will have to pay quite a bit amount you know, for labor to do this because welding, well, it's not cheap. Well, and it takes time. That's the biggest thing is it's time-consuming. 
That's right. That's right. Now, some now obviously once you you've gotten some of your lessons learned on the manufacturing process, a lot of these sheet metal pieces can be built with a CNC machine. So if somebody has like a CNC plasma torch or a CNC water jet cutter, they can very quickly and efficiently efficiently cut out all the parts and then put them right into a slip roll, which just takes the sheet metal and bends it into cylinders, and then have it welded together. So they can really reduce the uh, manufacturing time quite a bit, which will obviously reduce the cost. Sure. I mean, yeah, you're going through it the first time, and when you go through something the first time, it's never as, uh, as easy as the second time or even somebody else following behind you and, and just emulating you. Um, I just did a little uh, project with, with what's called a keyser, and it's basically converting a uh, deep freezer into a, uh, a high-efficiency refrigerator and uh, beer distribution system. Uh, and the the one I got has this alarm that starts screaming whenever the temperature goes over a certain level, and you hit reset, it stops. Um, but then, since you're using a thermostat that basically just kills the power to keep the temperature you know, in the mid-30s instead of 10 below zero, every time it shuts off and turns back on, this thing starts screaming again. Um, fortunately others had done that, so I was able to, but nobody had pictures or anything, but I was able to find, basically you can pull the panel off the inside and pull out the little circuit board and kill the, the screamer. Cause I don't care if the alarm's going off as long as I don't hear it. Um, but without having had someone done that first, it would have been a lot more difficult for me to take a $700 freezer and start pulling it apart. Um, so I think that pioneers that do things first make it easier for all of us along the way. That's right. And plus you get, I mean, if you're not the first one to do it, there's not as much inherent risk, right? So there's there's a lot more risk, you know, upfront money, and you're not really sure what's going to come out of it. Now, I'm somewhat, I'm not as much concerned with that because I'm pretty sure the gas fire in the end is going to work. And the way that I've kind of remanufactured it, I've added a bunch of flanges. Basically, I've made it so you could tear it right back down and replace any of the components if, you know, I find that one of them just doesn't work. Um, So I'm making it so that it is, able to accommodate the future changes that I want to implement and, you know, in case the, the it basically the efficiency or the product isn't, isn't what I want. So those are some of the things that I've learned just from, you know, what I, what I do at work all the time is basically to look at the design. Okay, how can we change this to make it cheaper to manufacture, more, you know, robust to manufacture? We get a higher quantity of, you know, usable parts out of a, you know, batch of a thousand or whatever. So those are some of the things that I've learned at work on how to, you know, make designs or, you know, think ahead to try to make things able to accommodate what is going to happen in the future. Very cool. So um, we spent a lot of time on this gas fire, but I know you're doing a lot of other things um, in this kind of world. What what other things are you working on? Sure. Well, uh, one one quick thing I wanted to throw out to everybody because I think it might actually you know could really help people. It really helped me. You know, in 2010 when I bought uh, bought a house, about a month or so after I bought the house, the central AC system just just quit, you know, and there was, I went up and I looked in the attic and all the ducts were leaking and I live in Florida and this was in the middle of July. So, you know, there's, there's nothing you could do. You have to have air. There's no question. It's so humid. It's so hot. Your house will mold up and you won't even be able to live in it anymore. And being that I just bought the house, I had spent most of my money on that house and didn't have, you know, seven grand for a new central AC system. So I went out and I looked into purchasing, you know, window AC units, thinking I would just have to take, you know, eat the cost on the electric bill. But when I went out and actually started looking at the, the, the models that are available in the box stores, I found out that they're really pretty efficient. I, 
for example, the old central AC system I had in my house was a 10-seer, which seer is just an efficiency rating on air conditioners. You'll see it's basically the electrical input in, you know, divided by the heat input out or something to that nature. So basically, it's, it's a, the efficiency. And the central AC system that I was put in my house in 2004 was a 10-seer. And the window AC unit that I bought in 2010 was a 10-seer. So to me, that sparked my interest. I said, okay, well, if I'm getting, I'm not going to be spending too much more money in electric, you know, let's see what this will really do for me. So I bought basically $700 worth of window AC units and put them in my house. I have about a 1,600 square foot house and found that my electric bill dropped from about 200 and something dollars a month during the summer to about 80 bucks a month during the summer. So then I started thinking about it and, and tried to figure out, you know, how is this possible? And then I realized that my leaky ducts were the answer. So the the efficiency ratings on the on the window AC units and on the central AC units only talk about the the energy or the efficiency of that actual air coming out of the unit. So your central AC system still has to send the cold air through your hot attic and then down into your house, which when it goes through the hot attic, even though there's some insulation on those ducts, it's not very much and it picks up heat. So when I put the window AC unit right in the window, you're directly cooling the room that you're, you're staying in, and you're not sending the air through the hot attic. So then it ends up actually being a lot more efficient. Now, part of that could have been that my ducts were leaking quite a bit, and the system was really on its way out, which usually happens with those units. And if I would have bought a new one, maybe the savings wouldn't have been quite as much, you know, delta. But still, it was almost, you know, 10% of the total cost of a central AC system. Um, and it works so well, I've actually continued using it, and it's been three years now, and I still use the same system, and, and it works just fine for me. So. Well, I mean, the nice thing is if you're not using a room, you don't cool it. That's right. When, or you, know, you don't cool it. I've, uh, in that situation, I've also had situations where, like, when it's really, really hot, you don't want one of the rooms in the house just getting blistering, but you'll set that unit a lot higher. So you might let that room be as warm as 80, 84 degrees, um, but you don't need it, like, you know, chill it out 72 comfort zone either. Yeah, plus it all really helps, you know, with the the uh, you know internal internal fights within the family because some rooms are always warmer than others. Correct. And so then you always have one person that's cold, and the other person is mad because they think the other guy keeps turning up because they're hot. Yeah. And and really, it makes you be able to kind of control your own little comfort zone that's around you. Um, and I've actually found that even though I've got you know three bedrooms in my house, I have one big unit which is like a fourteen thousand BTU unit in my living area, which is the largest unit that Lowe's sells that plugs into a 120-volt outlet. Okay. And then I've got smaller, properly-sized units in the bedrooms, because you really do need to make sure you size them properly for the square footage you're trying to cool. That's how it. That's how it works properly. That's how it controls the humidity properly, especially in Florida. It's very, very important. For example, on these units, I found I had to drill an extra drain hole in the bottom of the drip pan because there's so much humidity here, and I was running them 24-7, that they would yeah. basically fill the drip pan up and start blowing water into the room. Oh, yeah. wow, yeah, yeah. We just did a really cool project you'll like, I'll tell you about, with uh, with air, air conditioning uh, uh, moisture. I've got a very large house. It's almost 3,000 square feet. It might be a little bit bigger, honestly, because they converted the garage into more house. And uh, we do run central air because we have offices and, and people here, and and it's here, and it works. Uh, so we produce a lot of moisture out of this weep pipe on the side of the house. It's like in an alley between the, the new garage and the, and the house. And it just sits there and drips. So what I was doing is I'd throw a five-gallon bucket there and dump it in the garden. Well, it was filling a five-gallon bucket in a day easy and overflowing. 
Yep. So we had this old recycling 100-gallon, you know, rugged-made gas can from a recycling company that doesn't exist anymore. And our garbage people won't let us use it as our garbage receptacle, even though it's exactly the same. Um, so we're like, well, what do we do with it? So what I did is I cut the wheels off it. I leveled uh, four cinder blocks, you know, set up to be 12 inches off the ground and put it up on top of them, cut a hole in the top, and glued a piece of hardware cloth over the hole. That way the mosquitoes can't get in and set it where it will drip from there into this vessel. So, you know, about it's producing probably 80 to 100 gallons of water a week. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and all we did is we just cored a hole in the bottom, stuck a faucet in there, and we have a 50-foot length of hose attached to that. And we can just take it out front to the front gardens and just open it up. And basically it runs slow. It's not under any high pressure or anything, but it's plenty to move the water there. And just it just soaks into the, the front gardens. So is that an efficient way to produce water? No. But it's being produced anyway. And, of course, somebody's like, well, what happens if it overflows? Well, the same thing that was happening before it was there. <laughs> it's, a, right. it's, a, it's a net gain. We, we spent no money on it other than we bought, um, we bought a, a faucet. That was because everything else was just laying around here uh, from the previous tenants. And I think we found the, the hose bib in, in the garage. So technically, I don't think we spent anything on it. And I think that's really the key, too, is stacking of functions just like that. I mean, I've got mine dripping right into a swale that feeds into, a, you know, a garden bed. Now, how, yeah, that's awesome. You know, how much does it really, you know, get over and flow down the swale? Well, it's pouring right now, and I'm sure it's filling up. So, you know, it just, it just depends on, on how you do it. But that's, that's right. I mean, you just need to make sure you stack the stuff and then use the outputs. Just, I mean, that's basically, you know, the first permaculture principle. Do you have any brand recommendations or things that you'd say to avoid with window units? I mean, they've gotten a lot better. What I used to hate about them is they used to be noisy as hell. Yep. And newer ones are a lot quieter, and, and they, they seem to be a lot more efficient. Well, the ones that I use are Frigidaire. They have, um, basically, they come with a remote control. They have they, uh, a filter on them. They have, you know, an automated temperature, you know, so you set your temperature, it stays there. You can put it so that it's uh, more an energy-efficient mode if you leave for the day, so it'll actually turn the fans completely off, or you can leave it in full cold mode, which just keeps the fans blowing all the time. But Frigidaire, uh, I purchased those from Lowe's, and I found that those work very well. Um, you just got to be careful when you're drilling the holes in the you know bottom of the pan that you don't you know hit the condenser or something like that. But um, th that's that's what I've found to work the best. So uh, definitely a three years strong now, and those things have been running twenty four seven really. Awesome, awesome. You're doing some stuff with water too. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, I kind of wanted to bring this up based on uh, one of the Steve Harris, he had talked about a few months ago, you know, putting together a, a solar water pump or, you know, a well, solar well pump. And, and I, I had also looked into this a few years ago and found like he did, it's very difficult to find a cheap solar pump. I'm not really sure if that even exists. Sure. Um, but what you can do is if you look at, you know, take a survey of what the current type of pumps that are available in the industry, um, solar or not, it seems like you are able to either get, you know, high volume and low pressure or a higher pressure and low flow. And what I was trying to do was come up with a system that would actually be able to power, you know, a residential home and, you know, serve enough water for four to six people, say. And as I as I looked around and I looked at the cost, I came up to the same conclusions that Steve did. It's just it's it's re almost you know ridiculous unless you just don't have power. It doesn't make any sense. Sure. 
But if you look into some of the other industries, such as like the yachting and boating industries that use, um, they also use DC water pumps. And I was able to come up with a system that basically, now I have a shallow well. So this is where some people that have two to 300 foot deep wells, this probably won't work for you very well. The well outside of my house is, I think, 13 feet deep. I mean, so I'm, I'm basically almost at sea level here. Um, so with, I could purchase for that well a low, basically low draw, uh, high volume, low pressure pump that doesn't have to suck the water up from very deep. And then I would fill a cistern, you know, something 1,000, 1,500 gallons or so. Um, and you could do that, you know, throughout the day and just make sure you've got plenty of, res- uh, you know, reserve there. And then from there, I was going to then plumb from that big tank via these smaller yacht type. Um, now, these, these um, pumps from yachts are meant to basically, you know, take water from, from the sump and plumb it up so that you have, you know, normal household pressure on the yacht, just, you know, just like you had to have in your home. But I found that they didn't have a very large flow rate either. They were about a third of what you would need, to, you know, for a household of four to six, because you want to size it for the max capacity of, you know, what people are going to use. Um, but the good thing is, is that the, the pumps were, uh, you know, a fraction of the cost of the solar pumps. They're still DC. They're still high efficiency because they're running on boats. Um, so I was going to basically come up with a system that had three pumps uh, plumbed in parallel that would, you know, turn on, you know, one pump when you say you just went to the bathroom and you flushed once or something. There's only one person in the house. But if a bunch of people come over, everybody's taking a shower at once, it would turn on all three pumps to then be able to serve the volume that you're requiring. And that system I found was, was much you know, ended up being much cheaper than if you just went with the standard, you know, solar pumps. Obviously, you would still need to buy some PV panels and some battery backup just to make sure that that would all, you know, work. But it depends on really what you want this system for. If you're prime relying on it, then yeah, maybe that's what you do. But if you just want it, you know, like I was looking at it for, you know, we have a lot of problems with hurricanes down here in Florida. And, you know, back in 2006, I believe the power was out for our three weeks, almost a month in my area. And it's, it's pretty darn hard to, to live in a place, you know, with no power for that amount of time when you're used to, you know, being relying on, reliant on it. So that was kind of what I was looking for. Looking for um, and that was kind of why I designed the system. haven't put any details of that on the website yet, but I plan on kind of looking at that system again once I'm finished with the gas fire project. I really got to make sure I just, you know, focus and finish one of these things at a time. So that's kind of, kind of where I'm at right now with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people that like to do stuff like, well, me, have a tendency, if we get two or three projects going, none of them get done. Um, And, you know, if it's a small, simple project, you can probably get away with that. But when it's something complex, like you're actually designing a new solution, the mind really has to stay focused there before you move on to the next one. Because what you end up doing is that in every project, there's parts of it that kind of suck. And when you get to the suck part, then you go work on the other project to convince yourself you're still doing something until you get to the suck part of that one. And then you go to the third project, and eventually you have three projects and you're at the suck portion of all three of them, and you're like, okay, now i got to pick one of them. It's much better to get through the suck and uh, get to uh, completion stage and then move on to the next project. 
Yeah, it really gives you a lot more um, encouragement to keep moving on. It's you know finishing something I think is is very satisfying, especially when it works. But even if it doesn't, at least you you know you finished it. You you understand you know probably what happened or you know what went well, what didn't, and and that's that you know that really helps. But I I would have to agree that I'm definitely uh, I have to be careful that I don't get into too many things at once. I tend to want to stretch myself thin. So uh, that's kind of. I had done preliminary sizing of that system. I proved to myself that it was feasible, and I worked out the cost, but then I had never implemented it yet. So I, I plan on implementing it. That's really what I want to do with most of the stuff that I put up, because I want to test it myself. Uh, you know, a lot of people just throw stuff up there as, you know, pontificating or whatever they want to just, you know, say, well, this is definitely going to work, but then nobody's ever tried it. So And they don't do it either. I love right. that. The people that are like, this is the greatest thing ever. Everybody should do it this way. Okay, who's done it this way? Nobody, because nobody's as smart as I am. Okay, did you do it? Not yet. Yeah. Okay, well, when you do it, come back and show it to me. And who knows? You might be right. But until you do it, your credibility is lacking. Or if you've designed it and like 400 other people did it and it worked, well, then yeah. But the people that have the great idea that's never been done by anybody, those ones I'm always like, I'm not even like, so much writing them off, I'm just like, well, we're going to put you on the later shelf, and we'll examine your idea later when somebody or you do it. That's why I think also YouTube is very powerful. Even with the gas fires, you said you hadn't seen many FEMAs built, but actually if you go on YouTube, there's, I don't know about FEMA gas fires, but there's a lot of just... A lot of gas fires? A lot of gas fires. A lot of just homemade gas fires from people, some of them running trucks, running tractors. It's very impressive. So when I went on there and saw that, and, and you know, most of those people don't really have any sort of fabrication background either. I mean, I, I personally don't have, I have some of the knowledge from work on how they do it, but I don't do that day in and day out. That's not what my job is. So for me to do it, it's something completely new as well. So I said, okay, well, I can definitely do this, and I'm going to go ahead and give it a try. And that's kind of what gave me the encouragement to go ahead and try. Yeah, when I say I haven't seen um, a lot of famous built, what I mean by that is it kind of the thing that we were talking about just before we you brought that up, that... There's so many people that say this thing's great, um, but every forum you go into, there's plans for it here. I have the plans on my thumb drive or whatever, but you know, making it is is different than than talking about it. One more thing I want to cover with you here as we get toward the end of the show. You've been doing some thoughts on how to do what I think would be the bomb if you can make it work: solar powered air conditioning. And, and the reason I think this would be awesome is because. It is so much easier to run an off-grid home in the northern climate than a southern climate. In a northern climate, I can put in a root cellar, and I've got basically refrigeration. Uh, I can heat with wood, and I can open the windows and turn on a fan in the summer. Um, in, in Texas, or like you say, you're in Florida, you can live that way, but it's not comfortable. So what are your thoughts on how we can actually use the sun to cool? Sure. Well, um, um, maybe I'll, I'll make your day. This actually does work. Uh, it's okay. 100% proven. There's actually a couple different ways to do it. There's uh, basically it's it's thermally powered uh, refrigeration cycle. So it works almost exactly well, similar to how your current refrigeration cycle works, except for there's no compressor. So you eliminate one of the largest, highest cost components of the system, and it's also one of the largest or highest energy draw components of the system. So basically, instead of using the compressor to uh, compress the, refri the refrigerant and then allow it to expand, which is basically how, how your systems work now, you use um, heat from thermal collectors, or you can use heat 
from um, a waste heat from an engine to basically drive that circuit. And there's two different forms of it. One's called absorption cooling, and the other one's adsorption. So one has a B and one has a D. Um, And they're very, while they're not similar in how they work, but what I think which one, now both of these do actually work. You can look on um, the Internet. You could see examples of, for instance, fishing vessels that have these coolers installed on their vessels, and they use them to produce ice to make sure that they're, you know, the fish are kept cold. Um, It uses waste heat from the engine, the diesel engine, to kind of power the system. And basically how the cycle works is, um, well, you can use, you need a refrigerant and an absorbent. So it works very similar to how like use the absorbent would be like a silica. So it's something like a desiccant or something that can absorb the refrigerant and then desorb the refrigerant pretty easily based on temperature. So what you really want is like, for instance, you can use silica gel in water. So the water would be the refrigerant and the silica gel is in a matrix or an absorbent. Think about it like in a heat exchanger. Um, And then what you use the heat to do is heat either drives the water out of the refrigerant, similar to like, I don't know if you remember in the Steve Harris, he mentioned he was using zeolite in water um, to take the water out of the alcohol. Correct. So the zeolite in water is another pair. So what he was saying is you can reuse the zeolite if you heated it up and evaporate the water out of it. I don't know if you, if you remember that, but that's, yeah, that, yeah. that's exactly how this system works. So basically what you do is if you have a dry zeolite, say, where there's no water contained in it, and then you have um, that separated from a sump of, of water, you open a valve and you allow the dry zeolite to then start evaporating the water so it'll drop the, the local pressure in that area and the water from the sump will start basically evaporating and collecting in the zeolite. And eventually, in that evaporation, is the cooling. That's where you get your cooling effect of the refrigeration cycle. Eventually, the zeolite matrix or heat exchanger fills up with water. It can't hold anymore. So then what you would do is just shut the valve and switch over to another empty zeolite heat exchanger. And, and you basically, you need to have two of these in tandem. So while one is, is collecting water and cooling, the other one is being heated from your, your heat source. And then that causes the water to be driven out of the matrix. And then once the water is driven out of the zeolite matrix, it's then pumped out to another heat exchanger, which would be equivalent to a condenser in, in you know, a normal AC system where the heat is extracted from the refrigerant. And once it's cooled, it's then able to be put back into the sump and the cycle continues around it again. So it, it, it really it does work. Um, it has been proven. Now, where they mostly uh, use this, type of stuff is in larger buildings because they tend to get better efficiencies, higher, you know, uh, coefficient of performance, um, somewhere, you know, between uh, 0.3 to 0.4, per, you know, say. So the heat in to heat out is basically what you're looking at as far as coefficient of performance. Um, so they end up usually going with, you know, these for large buildings. It's funny, I was doing some uh, research earlier and I saw that in China has a couple, you know, all over the place. They've got some of these things implemented. It's it's pretty amazing. You would think that they weren't quite, they weren't, you know, they're supposedly not quite as advanced as we are, but it, it's quite amazing what they're doing over there. Yeah, I'm on Lennox's site right now. I mean, they make this stuff turnkey. That's this right. Isn't, I thought when I was first looked at your outline, I thought this was something that you know some engineer was going to piece together. Uh, from stuff here and there, but no, this is a turnkey type of system. You say larger buildings. Larger is a very uh, nebulous term. 
my one refrigerator is larger than my other, but neither one is that big. Uh, so when you say larger, what do you mean in kind of the realm of square feet? And we're talking commercial space of like 10,000 square yeah, feet or more? Yeah, it would be usually in commercial is where they're, they're implementing these. Usually they have a higher, well, right now because they're not widely used, obviously production rates aren't high. So the cost to implement it, install, it's going to be higher than normal. So the people that really look into these systems are the people that are paying a lot for electricity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they it's, so they can actually you know get get their uh, their return on their investment in in a reasonable amount of time. But where one thing to caution you on, there is a lot of different systems. So the absorption cooling works, and so does the adsorption. Absorption is a little bit different, and that has an issue in that. It's basically two refrigerants mixed together, and one is usually some sort of a salt type, and sometimes that can crystallize out, and there's a little bit more maintenance with that system. So that's kind of why I've focused more on the adsorption with a D, cooling. And there's not as many of those kind of for – I haven't found any for a resident residential, um, you know, in, in, for installs or anything like that, but it's becoming more uh, widely available. Uh, for instance, a few years ago I was talking with – a, a um, you know, refrigeration tech that was working on my house. And he said, you know, I was just asking him if he had heard of it. And he just said, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's, ref- that's for the future. You know, that's for my children to install or something like that. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's coming. It's been proven, but it just hasn't. All the kinks haven't been worked out of it yet. Well, um, Lennox is marketing it to the homeowner. I, I mean, oh, okay. I, yeah. Okay. Well, that's news to me. That's, that's actually good news to me, but that's news Yeah, to I, I'm going to flick this over to you on Skype right now so you can check it out once we're done. Um, I don't know enough about it to know whether or not it's it's it does enough to be worthy or and they don't have any cost on it which always makes it hard but their uh Lennox uh signature collection uh solar ready air conditioners ready to go and it's all of the terminology is about home you know okay. say, as small as a, a home can be cooled to perfection blah 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 so it's clearly at least by Lennox being marketed to a homeowner, and the units look about the size. There's nothing for scale, honestly, um, but they look about the size of the type of unit that you would, you know, do a home with, not a, a commercial warehouse. So that's pretty interesting. Oh, that, that's that's very good news. I would have to say I would be very interested to see what the price tag would come on on that per you know kilowatt. I'm sure it's not close to what you know a, a normal one is it comes at, but depending on, you know, your application and how, you know, how much you really wanted it, it may be already worth it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, they're pretty awesome looking. I will have to, I'll, I can't just sit here, I'm going to shut the window right now. So I'll stop looking at it. So I pay attention to what I'm supposed to be doing running the show. Um, but you've got me thinking because, you know, we've been talking about how we could build uh, our, our new community idea that we have perma ethos, and one of the challenges is how can you go as off grid as possible? Uh, and in a state like Texas, I will not be without AC. Um, one of these units actually might be really applicable. I know you say you get more efficiency in a big space, but it might actually be much more able to rapidly cool a small space. So that's right. And there, I mean, there's a, it, the other thing that's somewhat interesting about it is it provides you the ability to store. It's not cool, but do you have the ability to store the ability to cool air? So basically what I mean by that is once you have a vessel with the, say, the zeolite in it and it's dried, so after you've already heated it up, driven all the water out of it, if you then seal that vessel off, that has the potential, once connected back to the system, 
to cool without any additional inputs from from your your heat, right? You can actually get coolant right out of that. So if you stored a few of these vessels or, you know, depending on how you ended up designing the system, you can actually, you know, store some up for the rainy days that don't don't have the sun or, or, you know, when your engine's not running or wherever you're getting your heat from. So that's something that really, you know, most of the other systems don't really have that ability. That's very, very cool. Well, hey, man, uh, I've appreciated you being here today, and I've definitely learned a lot. I love interviews where I'm learning as we go. Um, can you tell people how they can, you know, you keep mentioning your site. So you have a website. Can you tell people how they can get there and uh, follow your progress? Sure, sure. The website is poweryourself, all one word, dot com. And that's basically just a blog I've set up. Uh, I have a, a newsletter there where it sends out a weekly email. At, you know, no spam, don't sell your stuff. Uh, just a weekly email telling you about my progress and what I've done for the week. Um, and I put up videos. I got a YouTube channel. Uh, I believe it's Quicksilver 1J on YouTube. Or, and uh, there's definitely a link of all the videos there on the site, so you can click over to that and see. I basically I try to record all the steps that I do, everything I do, good and bad. You'll see. I last video I put up was a failed weld. That you know I, I show everything up there. So if you're interested, um, you know come on by and, and just sign up for the newsletter and just follow the progress and we'll see where this goes. Um, some other interesting uh, websites you might want to look at is Larry Dobson. Um, I'll, I'll give you a link for the show notes. You can go right to a, a full set of plans for the gas fire that I started you know, this whole project from. And it's pretty interesting to take a look at that and then see where you know, the, the design has gone from and you know, where it is now. So, Very cool, man. Well, hey, uh, thanks for being here and thanks for opening us up to a whole new uh, can of worms here. Uh, with solar air conditioning, wood gasification, all the other stuff you're doing. And uh, I really appreciate you being with us today, John. Well, thank you very much, Jack. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on and, and share what I'm doing, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do this again sometime. Awesome, awesome, man. Well, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with John Fedick, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
düşer 